Welcome to the How To Academy podcast. I'm Vas Christodoulou. Maggie O'Farrell is the author of a best-selling memoir, I Am, I Am, I Am, and of eight novels. Her latest, Hamnet, was the winner of the Women's Prize for Fiction 2020. It tells the story of Shakespeare's son, reimagining a boy whose life has been almost forgotten, but whose name lives on in the title of the greatest play in the English language. She spoke to Hannah McInnes. The book is, of course, Hamnet, winner of the 2020 Women's Prize for Fiction and a Sunday Times bestseller, which I'm sure most of you, if not all of you, will know, tells the story of a boy who very few people know existed, whose life has been all but forgotten, but whose name was, of course, given to one of the most celebrated and well-known of plays ever written. So the novel was published, as I say, only last year, 2020, but this fascination with Shakespeare's very little-known son came to you, if I'm right, many, many years ago. Tell us about that, when this story of Hamlet first started forming in your mind and what drew you to him and to this story? Well, it is a novel I've wanted to write for a really long time, but I was lucky in a sense because I, I was told quite young, when I was quite young, about Shakespeare's son, who was called Hamlet. So I was 16 and I was studying the play Hamlet for my Scottish hires. And my teacher just mentioned in passing one day that Shakespeare had, had a son who was called Hamnet, who had died age 11, about four or five years before Shakespeare went on to write the play Hamlet. And I just remember being very struck by this and just wondering what it meant. And I went on later to study English literature at, at university. And it was then that I was reading these very long, detailed works of scholarship about Shakespeare and his big biographies. And I was really amazed that Hamlet was lucky if he got maybe one or two mentions in these biographies. And I just was really astonished that nobody else had really heard of him and nobody else had sort of explored the link between this name because it is the same name, you know, in Elizabethan times, spelling was a lot less stable. I mean, you know, we have six examples of Shakespeare's signature and he, he spells Shakespeare different in almost every one. He often spells it with an X, so it looks like Shakespeare. So, you know, even he couldn't really decide how his name was spelled. So Hamlet and Hamlet are the same name. They are interchangeable in parish records of the time. And it just seems to me, it's always seemed to me that, you know, Shakespeare is a man who is very mysterious to us, despite this enormous wealth of work and plays that we have of his. He's actually pretty shadowy. There are lots of gaps and longers in his stories that, despite the best efforts of the world's brilliant biographers and scholars, no one's ever been able to fill, join the dots. But it just seems to me that in the brief act of a man calling his play and also his prince, you know, his, his young protagonist, and also a ghost, let's not forget, after his dead son, he becomes briefly visible to us as a human being, as a, as a grieving father, as a heartbroken man, not as this literary behemoth. And it's that brief visibility that has fascinated me. So I, I just, I wanted to write it for a really long time, but there were several things that kept delaying me. Partly it was the idea of writing a novel about <laughs> William Shakespeare that kept putting me off. But also I had an odd superstition, actually, that I couldn't write a book, a novel about a dying 11-year-old before my own son had passed that age. So I needed to wait until he, he was safely beyond the age of 11 because I just thought I couldn't do it until he was he was beyond it. He's now a six foot 17 year old, so I was fairly safe. So just when I started to write it, I don't know, four years ago or three or four years ago, it just seemed that the planets were aligned and it was the right time in my life to do it. 
I love here. I've heard you say in past interviews that while you were waiting, instead of sort of, but you know, just biding your time, you just you wrote three novels while you were sort of putting it off. <laughs> That's right. I've written three books instead of writing Hamlet. You know, every now and again, I would, I would take down my uh, books from what I was calling my my Hamlet shelf, and I would do a bit more research, and I would I would do a bit more writing in the sort of experimental document that I had. And then I would swerve away from it. So I've written two novels and a memoir instead of writing Hamlet. Just to take you back to what you were saying about this extraordinary fact that Shakespeare, undeniably, I mean, one of the most famous people to have ever lived and the body of work, just you've hard pushed to find people who haven't heard of Shakespeare. And yet so little is known about him. And I just wonder why that is to, from, to your mind and also how you came across then the biographical information that, that you did? I mean, it's it's hard to know, really. Shakespeare has left a very scant paper trail. I mean, actually, the, the documents pertaining to William Shakespeare are, are pretty few and far between, strangely. I mean, if you contrast it to the number of documents that are uh, pertaining to his father, John Shakespeare, who had been had been a very successful glover in Stratford-upon-Avon. He'd also been a high alderman and a bailiff. He was quite high up in the sort of civic uh, structure of the town. Um, but then he... He actually, around the time Shakespeare got married at the age of 18, his the family fortunes had taken a big nosedive and he was in all sorts of trouble, legal, and he was in debt and he'd started illegally trading in wool and he was summoned for not attending church. And, you know, so there's actually this huge number of documents relating to John Shakespeare, but William hardly any. I mean, I read one theory. I mean, the thing about Shakespeare is there are so many, because of all these gaps, there are so many theories and uh, conspiracy theories that circulate around him. But I did read one very plausible theory because no one has ever been able to find any, I mean, very, very, very few letters by Shakespeare and also his library. But there was one theory that I read is that, that it could have possibly, if, if it had been kept in London, it could have been destroyed in the Great Fire of London, which to me seems quite a plausible explanation that there maybe there was this library of letters and maybe notebooks, uh, foul papers from the from the productions, uh, other b- books and works, but which maybe all got destroyed, which is a very, it's a very painful thought, really. Think of what we would know about him if, if we still had that. Yeah. I mean, I sometimes think in some ways, perhaps, it does a service to his works because people would spend so much time analysing how his context fitted into the themes. And actually now that they're perhaps they're freer of him without knowing too much, but you don't name him once in the book. I I, I have to keep going through just to check. I hadn't got that wrong, but you don't (laughs) name him William and you don't use the word Shakespeare. He's the Latin tutor, the father, the husband. Why did you choose not to say Shakespeare or William throughout the book? Well, there's a number of reasons, really. I mean, the book, you know, to me, is largely about names and naming, you know, the very strange echo of the, of Hamlet's name itself. And, you know, it's about our connection to our names and how they can become divorced from us and take on a life of their own, in a sense. And, you know, as you were saying, the name William Shakespeare is it's probably one of the best well-known names in the whole of the world, isn't it? I mean, I'd be you'd be hard-pressed to find somebody over the age of, I don't know, say 10 or 11 who hasn't heard of it. And it's just, it carries such enormous heft and significance and everybody has their own version of Shakespeare or their own relationship with Shakespeare inside their head. And I just found it impossible to write a sentence of fiction, you know, William Shakespeare sat down and ate his breakfast. (laughs) You know, instantly I just felt so self-conscious that I was sort of lurch up out of the narrative and I just think, you know, I, I feel like a total Egypt. And I thought, well, I can't expect readers to stay submerged in the narrative if I can't you know, if I can't even stay submerged. So 
I tried William, but that seemed, you know, colossally presumptuous. And Will was just, you know, so many steps too far. So I, I just, but also in a sense, I wanted to ask the reader to forget who he becomes and, and who he is in a sense, you know, that he sort of forget the idea that he's this literary behemoth mm-hmm. um, and just see him as a human being, as a man. So in a way, I needed to pull him away from his name to ask people to, to see him as a, just as a person, a human being. I mean, one of the ways you make it, normalise it in that sense as well and make it more relatable is the language is understandable language. You haven't tried to use Shakespeare's language. Again, you make the face, I think, for the same sorts of reasons. But interestingly, I've heard you say also you have to sort of start again in that sense because many of the metaphors we use today don't fit. Yes. I mean, I had I had a very, very clear rule that I was never, ever going to attempt to write sort of called Elizabethan Shakespearean dialogue. I mean, that would it would have been so wrong to do that in so for so many reasons. But least of all that, how could anyone hope to imitate Shakespeare? It would be you know incredibly presumptuous and ridiculous. So no, there was no way that I was going to do that. And I had a, I had rules that I was never going to use the word privy or sirrah or zounds or anything like that. Nothing like that was going to appear in the book. But I did what I did try for was a sort of authenticity of semantics. So I tried never to use a word that didn't have the same meaning now as it as it did then. So any word that had changed its meaning from the 16th century to the 21st century had to go. So, so I did the last few drafts with uh, with the OED, the Oxford English Dictionary next to me, and I would be checking words. So there was one I described in one scene, a girl listening to somebody talk, and she was I described her pleating her dress into concertina folds. And my editor quite rightly said concertinas didn't exist until the 18th century, so that had to go. And I'd also used the word shambles in the context of chaos or mess. And when I looked at it and I checked it in the OED, it said that in the 16th century, shambles meant to dice up a carcass. It was a kind of butchering term. So that had to go as well. So I tried for that. I mean, in a sense, it was only, I mean, I don't know whether it would have particularly affected an old, but it was important to me, I suppose, in a sense, to, to sort of have that line in the sand, have that rule for yourself. I mean, hearing you talk, looking at the acknowledgements, reading the book, it's clear your research is painstaking, as I'm sure, of course many novelists are, but I feel like yours is almost uh, another level. And perhaps you could tell us about the slightly intrepid and quite fun ways in which you researched this and came to know so much about medieval plants um, and birds of prey even. Well, I did. I mean, the funny thing, there were sort of two different types of research. You know, obviously, a lot of it was library based. I mean, there's no shortage of books about Shakespeare. You can spend the rest of your life reading about him if you wanted to. And lots of people do. So obviously, there was an awful lot of that. I mean, you know, the funny thing about writing a history, you know, I've written I'd written a book that was set in the 1920s and 30s. But this was the one, the first one I'd ever written in sort of the deep past, in a sense. So there's, there's an awful lot you need to know before you can even start. You know, if you're going to write a scene of two people, say, having an argument in, a, in an Elizabethan parlour, I found that I couldn't with confidence write that scene unless I knew what the floor was made of, what the walls looked like, what the windows were made of, what they were wearing, what the, what the fabric of their clothes was, you know, how it would feel next to their skin. I needed, need to know all that stuff. But actually, in a sense, I, I really wanted to leave about probably 95, 98% of it out, you know, because the kind of historical novel that I enjoy is one that doesn't feel too weighted down with the sense of the author's homework. <laughs> you know, I think it's the opposite of all that 
advice you're given about maths problems at school, you know, show your workings. Yeah. I think with a historical novel, it's the opposite. You need to not show your workings because I find it really frustrating when I'm reading a novel set in the past and I feel as though the writer is constantly wanting to remind me and shovel in all these details and, you know, it just slows down the narrative and it feels very leaden. Mm-hmm. The ones that the historical novels that I really like are the ones that are very light on their feet that wear their history very, very lightly. So I was very aware of that at the time, but also in terms of making the world feel alive in a sense, and particularly with the lives of some of the female characters, which are very underdocumented uh, in books of, about that period. Um, I needed to do, I, mean, I, I suppose I really wanted to get, literally get my hands quite dirty. So I did plant an Elizabethan medicinal garden from seeds and I cultivated it. And, and I should say that I'm not much of a gardener. So it was a very, very steep learning curve. But I think, you know, it's one thing to read in a history book that they used comfrey to ease aching joints or or whatever. And it, it's, you know, you can read that and absorb that information on, on an intellectual level, but it's quite another one to actually get the seeds and to plant them and then learn how to make a poultice from comfrey leaves to apply to a joint. You need to, you need to know that in a sense. So I, I did that and I also went mudlarking along the Thames which was really good fun. And I went digging about in Tudor dumps and I found a ship's glass, which is part of an Elizabethan ship that refracts, prismatic glass that refracts light into the hold. And I found the brass pins that they used to stiffen their ruffs and pin up their hair. Um, and I also, what else did I do? I, I baked bread from a Tudor recipe to find out how that worked. And I also, the most fun thing I did was actually learn falconry. I learned to fly a kestrel. But in a way... You know, it's important because I'd actually written the scene where Agnes, Shakespeare's wife, has is, is flying a kestrel because I wanted to do it because there's an awful lot about falconry. There's a lot of metaphors about falconry and hawking in Shakespeare's plays in Hamlet and also in um, Taming of the Shrew. So I gave that expertise to her. So, but I had written a scene where she's flying a kestrel and I had described the kestrel landing with a thud on her glove. And actually, when I went to the Scottish borders and met this falconer and she let me fly her kestrel, I realised that kestrels are about the weight of a newborn kitten. They are so light and so silent and secretive that they arrive almost without you noticing it. So that just it proves that you have to actually experience these things to write about them with authority. So I had to go right back and get rid of the, the mention of a thud because they, they don't feel that's the last thing kestrels do. It's extraordinary, extraordinary level of, of detail that I'm now listening to you say you learned to bake bread. I think actually I found those scenes, very the bread baking scenes, I kept sort of wanting to rush inside and make bread in the sense that they did. There was lots of butter melting on freshly baked bread. You talk about, of course, you know, the book is called Hamlet, but the really key character is Agnes, if I pronounce that right even, because we all think of Anne Hathaway as Shakespeare's wife. But why have we all known her as Anne so long? And, you know, what, why was it so important for you to almost redeem this reputation that, that she's had and bring her to life as a character in her own right? Well, it's funny, when I first planned to write the book, I originally thought it was going to be about fathers and sons and ghosts and absence, which, of course, is is what the play is about. But actually, when I started doing research, I was really shocked, actually, and then quite angry (laughs) about how Shakespeare's wife has been treated by historians, by scholars, by Shakespeareans, by other novelists, by writers of Oscar-winning screenplays. I... You know, I think we've been constantly taught this very single, clear narrative about her for the last 400 years, 400 odd years, is that she was this kind of older peasant woman who trapped this boy genius into marriage. We've been told again and again that he hated her, that he regretted his marriage. 
that he had to run away to London to get away from her. Um, and, you know, I've, I don't think I have, was unable to find a single, a single shred of evidence to support any of that. You know, I've read very respected Shakespearean scholars saying that she was, uh, had loose morals that um, it's possible that Susanna wasn't even Shakespeare's child, that she was ugly, you know. And, you know, I mean, there's one portrait of her in existence, just as an example, and it, it was it was it's a pencil portrait, and she in it she's this she's actually very far from ugly. She has got this very sort of narrow face with high cheekbones. She actually bears more than a strong resemblance to the actress Saoirse Ronan, who I think we can all agree is a pretty attractive young lady (laughs) but just the idea I don't know where it comes from or why there is this there has been this overwhelming urge to give Shakespeare a retrospective divorce and people will always invoke the you know the very famous behest in his will you know I leave unto my wife my second best bed what people never really mention about the will is that it is a very strange and arid document I mean yes he doesn't show any affection towards his wife but he doesn't show any affection to anybody I mean it is you would never think that this is a document written by the same man who wrote possibly the greatest lines ever about love I mean he was dying (laughs) let's not forget probably of typhoid which is a particularly painful and unpleasant death and actually the second best bed the two things about it it isn't it is an interlineation so it's been squeezed in between two other lines by whoever has written it because Shakespeare himself doesn't didn't actually write the will he's he's he possibly dictated it who knows but also in jacobean law of the time as his wife she would have been entitled to a third of his estate and uh, and she would have been allowed to live on in the house for for the for the rest of her life and shakespeare at this point was a he was the equivalent of a multimillionaire you know his he lived in a vast mansion of a house i mean his estate was enormous so the idea that she is this rejected wife that's been who's been thrown out on the pavement with just a bed to her name is is preposterous you know and at the end of his career what's always more crucial to me is at the end of his career when he retired from the stage like I said he was a very very wealthy man he could have chosen to live anywhere he could have set up a house or wherever he wanted but he was living in very modest lodgings a single room in London all his money he sent back to Stratford so he bought as I said a mansion for his wife and daughters a year after Hamlet died he bought fields and cottages and land that he leased out so he was a very wealthy business, um, landlord in Stratford. But at the end of his career, when he retired, he came back to Stratford to live with his wife, which does not, to me, that's to me, this the most crucial detail, because that does not imply that he was a man who hated his wife and regretted his marriage. You you mentioned, it's it's all absolutely fascinating, and you mentioned Saoirse Ronan then. You made me think of something that I was wondering while I read it. It's hugely, it's very filmic. Do you ever, when you're writing, do you, do you bring it to life ever in the sense that it might beyond the big screen or the small screen? <laughs> well, I'm not thinking of it in those terms at the time, certainly. I, I like to, you know, I think there is, there should be no ideas, but in things, that's that famous uh, Wallace Stevens quote. I think it's Wallace Stevens. Now I'm having, I'm doubtful, now I'm saying that. I think detail is the most important thing to me to bring to li- something to life, but I wasn't thinking of it. I mean, it has, the film rights have been sold. Good. Actually, I'm not allowed to say who to at the moment, but... Uh, <laughs> But it, it, yeah, so who knows what will happen? I don't know. But no, it's not something that I'm planning. I don't really think in those terms. You know, I think of novels are my main love. I don't know why. It's just my brain seems to work in that way. I like to look at the narrative and the structure of a novel more than a screenplay. I think I would find screenplays very hard to write. I'm going to leave it to the experts. I think uh, just hearing you talk about Sovereign and also just what a wonderful character Agnes is in your in your book. She's just. She's just the most brilliant, exciting character. It's wonderful to also be able to see her come to life. And there's so, there's so many things you've mentioned that 
you said it surprised and angered you about that portrayal. And I just wonder before we move on, whether there was anything else in your research about Shakespeare's life that's, that had surprised you that you, that you hadn't expected to find. I mean, actually, so many things. There was so much that I was surprised by. I mean, just going back to her name, actually, one of my lightning bolt moments in writing her character was when I read her father's will. So her father, Richard Hathaway, died a year before she married William. And he, uh, in his will, he leaves her a very generous dowry, but he refers to her as my daughter Agnes. And that was a, a, a real <laughs> shock because I thought, you know, on, on top of everything else about her, it looks as though we've been calling her by the wrong name. You know, as I was saying, you know, spelling and names were unstable in those days. And you can see, so it would have been pronounced closer to the French, Agnes or Annes. So you can see how a scribe might have transcribed it as Anne, or maybe it was shortened to Anne. Um, who knows? But, I, you know, I kind of think if anyone knew her real name, it was probably her father. But that to me was a, as a kind of gift of the novelist, because I wanted, I want readers to try and put to one side the narrative that we've been taught about her. And this, using this, her birth name in a sense, I, I wanted to say to readers, you know, this is this is somebody new. This is somebody you haven't yet met. This is a different idea of what Mrs. Shakespeare, who she was, and, and what she was in a way. But I mean, there were so many surprises. I remember one of the things being really surprised quite, quite early on, was I'd always sort of vaguely assumed in my head that when Shakespeare left Stratford upon Avon as a young man and went to London. I always had a sort of vague idea of him catching a carriage or catching a coat, you know, a coach and horses. I don't know why. It's probably from lots of uh, lots of Jane Austen, <laughs> Jane Austen TV adaptations, which of course is a lot later than this. Yeah. Um, but actually, there weren't there were no commercial coaches in those days. It was very very you know they were they were unheard of, and he would have walked from Stratford to London, which would have been a journey of four days. Or if he was lucky to get a lift from a farmer and a cart, he would have taken less nice. So that that was a shock. But there were all, I don't know, there were so many things. It really did seem, I mean, one of the, one of the things, and I actually, when I was researching the book, my children limited me to one Tudor fat per day. I was not allowed to say more than one <laughs> at the dinner table. <laughs> and if I tried to say another, they'd say, no, no, you've had your one, the only one. And what my favourite ever Tudor fact, if I can just give you one, is that, Tudor sheep were half the size of the sheep we have today. Imagine how cute they would have been. Imagine the lambs, tiny, tiny little lambs. Yeah, so that, that was my favourite Tudor fact. I, I'm, I'm not surprised in any sense that you wanted to relay more facts per day because it's all, it's all extraordinary, the insight you must have gained. Uh, many, many novelists, I, I feel that I, I have interviewed, or female novelists, I should say, sometimes find it reductive people always looking for autobiographical details in their novels and they, they they sense that maybe you don't do that to male novelists and you do to female novelists but do you feel that you put your own experiences in there your own your own life or is this very much trying to escape into other worlds you said obviously you've, you've grown the, the garden outside that was very new to you but generally how much of yourself do you feel that you put into a novel and this one particularly I mean, it's hard to identify, really. You know, I think the, the lines are very, very blurred, especially in the kind of final drafts of a book. But, I mean, I do I do have a feeling that most fiction, I mean, probably all fiction, actually, is a sort of patchwork or a palimpsest of things that you make up or things that you maybe perhaps research or read about and things that actually, you, you know... <laughs> and I think that any... I think any writer who says there's absolutely nothing of my experience in this novel is... It's probably lying. You know, there's there's always going to be aspects of your life that are woven into it. But actually, by the time you've written it and you've recast it into another person's life and another name, or you've put 
words that you heard or said into someone else's mouth it does feel at arm's length very much to you mm-hmm. so it's, it's I think it's a hard I think it's much more tangled for me anyway than it is and actually it's quite hard in a way you know I think that's probably quite peculiar for people who know you well to read your novels I mean my husband has said to me that sometimes he'll be reading one of my books and he'll think it's a novel it's a novel and then he'll, t- he'll turn the page and he'll be confronted by a scene that he remembers that he was there or you know something so I think it, it is peculiar in that sense but I think it's always a mix and it's often quite hard for the writer certainly to disentangle by the end. Of course and you mentioned that um, at the very start about right how hard it was to you to contemplate writing this death of, of Hamlet and it is it is an incredibly sort of almost overwhelming scene when you when you do write about the death I wonder how you can put yourself into the mind of you know in that sort of a place many couldn't it's almost confronting every mother's worst fears mm. how do you do that do you do you have to take a deep breath and go into a place you don't want to I mean it, it was very very important to me to make Hamlet's death feel like a an event you know to feel devastating because that was my you know that was one of my purposes for writing the book you know the engine behind the book was always for me that I don't feel that Hamlet is well known enough I feel that he's been consigned to a literary footnote and he's he's never been given the significance that he was due not only only in the grief and of his own family but also in the wider context you know I I think without him we wouldn't have the play Hamlet and we probably wouldn't have Twelfth Night you know we owe him so much but also, you know, I've read, again, going back to the biographies that I read of Shakespeare, and I've read people saying, you know, oh, it's impossible to know whether or not Shakespeare <laughs> grieved for his son. <laughs> what a terrible thing to say. You know, how could anyone say that? And often when they, his death is mentioned in these books, it's often wrapped up in statistics about child mortality in Elizabethan age, almost as if the implication is, you know, it happened such a lot that it wasn't really that big of a deal. You know, and I find I just refuse to believe that at any point in history, anywhere in the world, the death of a child is anything less than absolutely devastating. So in a sense, I wanted I wanted to dignify his death and his life to say, you know, this child was important. He was grieved. You know, his, his family was shattered by it. And you only only have to read the opening scenes of the play Hamlet through that lens to realise that the whole play is underpinned by this enormous undertow of grief and that the whole play can be seen as a message from a father in one realm to an unreachable son in another. So in that sense, I wanted it to be hard, but it was, it was, (laughs) certainly there weren't scenes that I relished. And I do remember when I was writing the first half of the book, and closer to the moment where he was going to have to die, I, I sort of wanted to backpedal a bit and go back and redraft a bit at the beginning and then, you know, um, go and fix something in another chapter. I was really reluctant to do it. But I did have to, I found actually that I couldn't write them um, in the house, those scenes where my own children live. I had to write it in a shed in the garden, which actually a really horrible shed. It wasn't a nice writing shed. It was a disgusting sort of spidery potting shed that has actually since blown down in a gale. So I wrote it in there and I had to do it in quite short bursts. I would do, I would write for about 15 or 20 minutes then I would have to take a break and walk around the garden and then I'd go in and do it again. So they were, I mean, not, I wouldn't say technically hard to write, but certainly in a sense of the places you had to dig in order to access how it would feel. I mean, you know, like you say, it is absolutely every parent's worst and most, most visceral fear to lose a child. You know, it's unthinkable and, and nobody would want to think about it. So it is tapping into that. But, you know, in a sense, I think the... I've always felt anyway that that grief is the is the other side of love. You know, if you love somebody, your connection to them and your urge is to keep them in your life, isn't it? 
And I think it's not that huge a step really to turn it inside out like a sock or a glove and think, well, this, this is what my life would be like without them. So I think a large part of our love and our bond with people is fear of loss. The way you write about death and you, you go into the minds of, of those who are encountering death and, and put the particularly sort of fascinating and clever or the way that you put yourself into the future mind of that person, looking back at the moment, wondering what they should have done, what they could have done. There's a lot of speculation around it. Um, I, I wonder how this sort of thinking about death has been informed by your own experiences and your own very near death encounters that you write about in your memoir and you've spoken about since. Yes, I mean, I'm sure, I don't know. I mean, it's, it, is, it is that place that you have to go to to think about it. You know, I wanted readers to feel connected to Hannah and I wanted them to feel upset. <laughs> in a way, it sounds awful, doesn't it? But I wanted them to feel affected by it because, it because I think his parents were. You know, I always feel as though he's never really, he's never been given his due. You know, he's never, his death hasn't been, amplified uh, as uh, as significant as as I'm sure that it was so so possibly it is but I think also you know you have to remember in those days death was unfortunately a lot more present you know the number of children the number of people who died I mean life expectancy was 47 you know so it wasn't and I think that they were very connected to you know they had greater connections to religion and superstition and uh the supernatural than we do you know there was a lot more uh, a sort of closeness to nature and the natural cycles and and superstition than it is in, in our society hello it's vas here one of our all-time favorite guests at how to academy is back yuval noah harari's next book tells the story of how information networks have made and unmade our world nexus a brief history of information networks from the stone age to ai is out in September and available to pre-order now. Hey there, I'm Dr. Maya Shunker, and I'm a scientist who studies human behavior. Many of us have experienced a moment in our lives that changes everything, that instantly divides our life into a before and an after. On my podcast, A Slight Change of Plans, I talk to people about navigating these moments. Their stories are full of candor and hard-won wisdom. And you'll hear from scientists who teach us how we can be more resilient in the face of change. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I mean, you talk about being close to death. The most fascinating thing, and reading it now, just after the year that we've had, when you take us out of the main central story and you follow the life of one flea coming from a monkey. I've now forgotten the country that the accounts of the monkey. Alexandria. Yeah. Alexandria. And across the, across the sea to the different countries essentially coming back and the contagion. It is so eerily prescient reading that now. We think we've advanced in all these sorts of ways and we live in this you know, age of progress. And yet reading that chapter, you know, very little... This year, we've, we've sensed that, how quickly everything can travel and it's sort of, you know, pot- potentially from an animal in the same way. When you look back at the process of writing that now, when you had no idea what was to come, I mean, it's uncanny. <laughs> I mean, it is strange, you know, I remember when I wrote that chapter, you know, it just felt, it felt like an intellectual exercise, really, or uh, research, you know, I remember looking quite carefully at Elizabethan, maps of Elizabethan trade routes and ports and working out where ships would have stopped and, you know, and, and reading it that that about it's actually really disgusting few days when I was in researching the life cycle of the flea, which if anyone wants to feel really revolted, you you could go and look at all the eggs and the the larvae. It's really horrible. 
But I suppose in a sense, you know, and it was strange, you know, because I wrote that. I mean, I, I mean, it wasn't a chapter that I'd planned originally in a novel, but there was just a sense when I was coming to the halfway point of the book, I, I felt as though I needed to sort of uh, throw it open. I suppose if I was a film director, I would sort of suddenly think I needed a, a sort of wide angle lens. And also, I mean, I, you know, researching about the Black Death, you know, the bacterium Yersinus pestis, it was so horrifying and it was so realising how prevalent it was and you know I mean at one in one outbreak it killed a quarter of the world's population and that's just in Asia and Europe but never of course reached the Americas you know just the the absolute horror of that disease was so jaw-dropping you know the fact that it could have it felled a healthy person within 24 hours you know I read accounts of people sitting down to dinner one night and then by the next night they, they were dead you know I think it must have been absolutely at the forefront of every single Elizabethan's mind they would have feared it constantly and it would have been a real threat, you know, that came all the time. You know, if you think of the amount of trade and commerce that suddenly appeared in the 16th century, and of course came with it these these awful diseases, you know, it would have been the one that they most they most feared profoundly. Mm. So I suppose I just wanted to give a sense of the sort of global scale of it in a way to give a sort of perspective on it. So I do remember, you know, realizing that I wanted to write this chapter, and but the really odd thing was, of course, you know, last. February or whatever it was in 2020 when you know we realized that COVID had reached Italy we were all looking at these maps of it you know these arrows of infection and the weird thing was that those infographics looked exactly the same as the the maps that I'd had on my wall so it is it, it is odd you know it was strange but you know in a sense I think it I think if we look back to previous populaces and what they went through I think in a sense we we do have to realize that we are fortunate or more fortunate compared to them you know we we know, for example, how this pandemic is spread and we can take steps against it. You know, we know that it's it's passed by hand-to-hand contact or sneezing or coughing or whatever. But actually the Elizabethans had no idea how the Black Death was passed. They thought it was part, it was caused by sin. They thought it was caused by the beam of the eyes of a sick person falling on a healthy person. They had no, you know, it, it actually only was until, I think it was the end of the 19th century, turn of the 20th century, when they realised that it was passed by fleas and lice. So they had absolutely no protection against it, no no ways to combat it, no ways to cure it at all. So in a sense, we are, I think it's important to bear in mind that we are more fortunate than them. I mean, it's extraordinary, of course, as well, you say, and I could, this could be wrong, I could, could have misremembered this, but that Shakespeare didn't write about the, the plague. Is that right? Doesn't make it into any of Shakespeare's works and you wonder whether perhaps he was so traumatized by the death of his son from the plague that he couldn't write about it yeah he doesn't mention he never used it i mean there's a brief mention of a pestilence that prevents the letter in romeo and juliet and if you remember the friar is walled up somewhere because there's a there's a, a pestilence that he mentions you know when you consider how how it would have been at the forefront of every single person's mind and his career itself would have been constantly interrupted by outbreaks of the plague. I mean, the first thing that the civic authorities in London would have done if there was an outbreak was to shut down the playhouses. The original Globe Theatre had capacity for 3,000 people and they were all meeting in the middle of the day for the light Mm -hmm. to watch the play. Um, You know, you can see why the London authorities decided this was a plague spreader because they would have been, unfortunately. So he would have been, um, you know, in big outbreaks, he would have probably had to go home to Stratford or if the outbreak were just contained to London, he would have been he would have been forced to go on tour. He would have taken his company, the King, the Chamberlain's men or the King's men on tour around the smaller um, counties around London. And actually, there is a playbill that proves the 
they were in Kent at the time of Hamlet's death. So it's not known whether or not he actually made it back for Hamlet's funeral. But it's always intrigued me that very loud absence in Shakespeare's work. If you think, you know, I mean, you think of the enormity of references and metaphors and plots and uh, that he, he, he writes in his plays, but he never really uses the plague at all. And I think one of the things that really horrifies me, in a sense, is the speech of the ghost in Hamlet, where he's describing his death to Hamlet. So, we, you know, the, the, remember that the ghost is also called Hamlet and he's talking to his son. He's telling him about how his brother murdered him and his brother Claudius pours poison into his ear while he's sleeping in the orchard. And he describes poison coursing through his body and how agonising it is. And he says, horrible, horrible, most horrible. And he describes the agony of it coursing through his body and the shivers and the shakes. And and reading that, I I cannot help compare it to descriptions of death of the people dying of the Black Death. It's very, very similar. And I really, really hope, in a sense, that that speech is fictional. But I have a horrible suspicion that actually it's Shakespeare describing the death of Hamlet. Mm. And, you know, I think in many ways, I find in the play Hamlet, I find Shakespeare briefly appears as himself. So I think that is an example. And I think also there's the part where Hamlet writes a play in order to catch the king. And he takes the actors aside and says, please, whatever you do, this is how you pronounce my word, trippingly off the tongue. And he says, don't do this, don't do that. <laughs> and if you read that scene, you think, oh, my God, there he is. That's him. <laughs> so this is him saying to his actors, please don't do this. Pronounce it trippingly. Don't do this. And, you know, I do think that you occasionally see him. You see him, the person in Hamlet. But I do think that speech of the ghost, I actually almost find it very hard. I find it almost unreadable because I find it so painful because I do believe we are listening to Ham- Hamlet, the boy. And it's, and it's one of the most, I, I, I'm not sure how much to give away, but it is one of the most beautiful sort of extraordinary scenes of the book when you watch the play through Agnes's eyes and you see all of that that you're talking about come to life. It is, it's just hugely entrancing that part. Um, but if, if people haven't read it, I don't, I don't, it's at the end and it's so beautiful. I don't want to give that entire scene away. You've mentioned um, a couple of things about your creative process, for example, writing in the shed, which is now no longer exists and, and various bits. But just before I uh, go to audience questions, I know people, it's fascinating to hear from such an established novelist as yourself, how you go about this, uh, your, your process of writing. Do you have a place that isn't now the shed um, that you go to sort of religiously to write in? Do you have a time of day? Uh, and also perhaps you could just say whether lockdown and, and being in this strange situation of the past year has impacted upon that much. Um, well, I don't really, I'm not a very organised person either in life or in writing actually. So I do slightly, I don't really make huge numbers of plans for a book. I I tend to try and, uh, I, you know, I usually have an idea and I know roughly where I want it to go, but I tend to sort of work it out on the way <laughs> a lot of the time as well. And I'm very open to the, or I would try and remain open to the idea that your book will uh, uh, naturally take its own momentum and it will take its own direction. So often you think you're going to write from A to B and actually in in the actual writing of the book, it will go from A to C or A to D. But I, I quite welcome that moment because I think that's when it's a sign that your material is working, that it has a pulse and its own heartbeat in a way because it's, it's taken its own, its own, it's taken charge of itself <laughs> in a sense. So, but in terms of, I do now have, in fact, Shed the Blue Down, it has been rebuilt as a writing studio. 
very recently and it's now ready. So I do go and hide down there and I have absolutely no Wi-Fi or any connectivity down there because I find I do find that quite distracting. I find digital distraction very detrimental to writing. So I just go down there and I just write as if it's as if it's 1990 and the email has not been invented. <laughs> so I do that. But it's um I don't know. I mean, certainly lockdown has been, you know, I mean, everybody's struggled in lots of different ways, haven't they? And I think, um, I think in some ways writers were probably, you know, I think we've all, you know, writers work from home anyway. So in that sense, we had a lot less to adjust to. What I did have to adjust to was homeschooling three children and trying to <laughs> structure time around that, you know, because I think for writing or I in any way need, I need quiet and I need solitude and I need uninterrupted sort of daydreaming in a sense, which is, <laughs> which is, that's been a very rare commodity in households with young children and homeschooling young children. So that was interesting. I mean, there was one time in lockdown when actually my husband and I was staring homeschooling and he was with them and I was trying to work and I was in the house and somebody was coming in about every two minutes needing to find their pencil case or their French book or their, you know, <laughs> a jam jar suddenly. And I felt so sort of overwhelmed by all this interruption that I went and hid in my daughter's Wendy house, which was this tiny place. And I cr crunched myself in there and had my laptop on my knee, which was great because I, nobody found me for about two hours. So if uh, anyone with solitude, just get a Wendy house. It's not great for your back, but it's very good for... <laughs> I heard you say on your recent Desert Island Discs that you use music to transport yourself from, from you into, you know, from, from daytime homeschooling you into writing you. Is that, is that right? Yeah, I find music very useful, actually, in a sense. Not in a sense. I don't actually have it on when I'm writing, but I use it to make that transition to sort of bridge from my everyday world to my whatever world my novel is inhabiting. It's quite good. It sort of lulls you. So I don't know, there's something about, and I often play the same track over and over again, and that kind of lulls you and it sort of makes the real world fade away, in a sense. It seems odd to do this now at the end, but I'd actually love this as a transition, perhaps now into, into audience questions. Perhaps you might just read um, a small part from, sure. from the book. Um, this is the part from very near the beginning of the book, where Hamnet is running about the house trying to find someone to help him because his twin sister Judith has fallen ill and he comes across his grandfather. The room is filled with gloom, coverings pulled over most of the windows. His grandfather is standing with his back towards him in a crouched position, fumbling with something, papers, a cloth bag, counters of some sort. There is a pitcher on the table and a cup. His grandfather's hand meanders through these objects, his head bent, his breath coming in wheezing bursts. Hamnet gives a polite cough. His grandfather wheels around, his face wild, furious, his arm flailing through the air as if warding off an assailant. Who's there? He cries. It's me, Hamnet. His grandfather sits down with a thud. You scared the wits out of me, boy, he cries. Whatever do you mean, creeping about like that? I'm sorry, Hamnet says. I was calling and calling, but no one answered. Judith is unwell and they've gone out. His grandfather speaks over him with a curt flick of his wrist. What do you want with all those women anyway? He seizes the neck of the pitcher and aims it towards the cup. The liquid ale, Hamnet thinks, slops out precipitously, some into the cup and some onto the papers on the table, causing his grandfather to curse, then dab at them with his sleeve. For the first time, it occurs to Hamnet that his grandfather might be drunk. Do you know where they've gone? Hamnet asks. Eh? his grandfather says, still mopping his papers. His anger at their spoiling seems to unsheath itself and stretch out from him like a rapier. Hamlet can feel the tip of it wander about the room seeking an opponent. 
Don't stand there gawping, his grandfather hisses. Help me. Hamlet shuffles forward a step, then another. He is wary, his father's words circling his mind. Stay away from your grandfather when he's in one of his black humours. Be sure to stand clear of him. Stay well back, do you hear? Hamlet believes he is well back. He is at the other side of the fireplace. His grandfather couldn't reach him here, even if he tried. His grandfather is draining his cup with one hand and shaking the drops off a sheet of paper with the other. Take this, he orders, holding out the page. Hamlet bends forward, not moving his feet, and takes it with the very tips of his fingers. His grandfather's eyes are slitted, watchful. His tongue pokes out the side of his mouth. He sits in his chair, hunched, an old, sad toad on a stone. And this, his grandfather holds out another paper. Hamlet bends forward in the same way, keeping the necessary distance. He thinks of his father, how he would be proud of him, how he would be pleased. But quick as a fox, his grandfather makes a lunge. Thank you. Thank you so much. And um, we've got some um, great audience questions coming in, so I'm going to get through as many as I, as I possibly can. So an interesting one. Given you did this research into Elizabethan England, did it make you wish you could visit the era? And what would you like to experience? Well, I mean, it's, it's, it's a bit of a no-brainer, actually, that one. Yes, I would love to visit, but and I, I would definitely love to see a Shakespeare play at the Globe, an original production, the first production. I really like to see the first production of Hamlet at the Globe, which, you know, I, I did read a story, perhaps apocryphal, that Shakespeare himself took the role of the ghost. So that would be pretty unforgettable, wouldn't it? So I would like to do that. I would also quite like to go hawking with Agnes. <laughs> well, you know that they are, uh, the Globe, when it reopens, is going to be much more sort of in, in keeping with um, Shakespearean, how it would have been then, and, and people are going to be able to sort of wander in and come and go and, Reading those scenes, I did, I did think about that. How did you come up with the second sight aspect of Agnes's character? Is, is it completely from your imagination or any historical basis for this idea? Well, the mixture actually, there was one very tiny mention of her running a malting business from the back of her house, the, the house they move into, new place in Stratford-upon-Avon. Um, you know, and of course, malt was very important in those days because they used it for brewing beer. So I just like the idea of her being this plant woman. She believes she has second sight, but not everybody in the, in the book does. You know, some, some people think she's making it up. Um, that came largely from the plays, actually. There's an awful lot of prophecy and second sight and superstition in plays, particularly in you know, the witches and Macbeth and in Julius Caesar and, and Hamlet as well. Um, and, you know, I think it goes back to that in that era, there was an awful lot more store laid in that type of communication or that type of belief. So I just, and also I did, I was quite intrigued by the idea of what Shakespeare would have been like as a young man in Stratford, how people would have seen him. You know, we of course know now what was inside his head, you know, what his imagination was capable of. But I wonder whether people then just thought he was a bit odd. <laughs> you know, he must have, he must have stuck out like a sore thumb, you think in a small, rural market town you know you imagine being his I don't know his Latin teacher or his um, rhetoric teacher at grammar school you know he must have been extraordinary and I just wonder whether I like the idea of her seeing something in him which perhaps other people didn't mm. seeing some kind of potential in him so that's that's where the idea of that came from for her. It did make me continue to try and as you say he, he the witches in Macbeth and so many references and I kept thinking is he is he sympathetic to that 
through his plays, you know, because obviously in in the novel, he he's very, very much in love with his wife. And I kept wondering whether there was a sympathy for that sort of thing. Do, do you think there is? Well, I think, I mean, I don't know about Macbeth. I think the witches are very ambiguous characters in Macbeth, aren't they? I mean, they're interesting, they're very interesting characters. And I think I've seen lots of the plays where they are terrifying evil crones. And I've seen other productions where they are these very interesting they're trying to warn Macbeth, you know, they are, they're, they're a force for good in a sense. So I think they are ambiguous. So who knows what he re- what he would have thought about it. But uh, yeah, I, sp- I suppose in it, I think in his plays, like so many things about him, he he gets us to ask questions about yeah. it. It doesn't necessarily come down on one side or the other. And we're, um, exactly why we're still asking questions and questions and questions today. Somebody says, if the play Hamlet concerns Shakespeare's relationship with his son, do you feel that the father's and daughter's theme in the late plays, The Winter's Tale, The Tempest, etc., reflect his concern with his relationships with his daughters? That's an interesting question. I I would think probably, yes. I mean, obviously he was left with two daughters, Judith, who was Hamlet's twin, and his older daughter, Susanna. And I think there are interesting things that happen to those daughters. I mean, actually, they are quite intriguing, those two girls. They live an extraordinarily long time. Judith lives until she's in her early 70s. Mm. And um, Susanna is in her, her 60s and she marries uh, a doctor. And there's a there's a whole scandal that the family go through because Judith marries a vintner uh, called Thomas Quiney, who's you know, a, a wine merchant. And just very, a few months into their marriage, he is embroiled in a terrible scandal in Stratford because he is named by a woman in town as the father of her unborn child. And that woman then unfortunately dies in childbirth. And then he, in, you know, um, in, in the law at that time, a man who, a woman who made a woman pregnant, she died in childbirth, he's had up in what's called the Baldy Court for murder, essentially. So this whole terrible thing happens to Judith. And that's the reason why Shakespeare actually alters his will. He essentially, uh, ring fences his money that he gives to Judith so that Thomas Quiney does not get his hands on it. So there is this terrible kind of, <laughs> you can see if you read the will and you know all this has happened, there is a big, uh, obviously a big family embroilment about legacies and money and which, you know, of course makes you think of say King Lear. So I'm sure that there was an awful lot going on between, I, I've always imagined those sisters to be slightly at loggerheads actually. Somebody else says, this is your first fully historical novel. I mean, as you say, you've written about other periods in history. It sounds like the research process was um, fascinating and invigorating. Do you have plans to explore other periods of history in your fiction? Yes, possibly. I mean, actually, I'm I'm writing a book at the moment, which I'm about three quarters of the way through. And I unfortunately can't tell you when or anything else about it, (laughs) because I'm very, uh, I'm very wary talking about books that I haven't yet finished just because I worry that if I talk about them, that it'll sort of drain me of the urge to write them. But that one, I can say, is set in the past. <laughs> but I can't say any more than that, unfortunately, which is a bit annoying. I realise that. I apologise. No, we will all wait, obviously, of course, the beta breath, and then hopefully you'll be back talking about that on publication. Um, given that you, you read King Hamlet's speech detailing his death as that of Hamlet, do you think there is an implication to you that the child Hamlet, or even Shakespeare, blames... Um, his sister for giving him the plague as King Hamlet describes his sibling pouring the poison in his ear. Gosh, I'd never thought of that. No, I don't. <laughs> I don't think they ever blame each other. I mean, I think, no, that never occurred to me. I don't think so at all. You know, obviously boy and girl twins are, are is a recurring motif in Shakespeare's plays, if you're thinking about Twelfth Night, for example. But actually Shakespeare always deals with it with this incredible love between the boy and girl, the fraternal twins. 
And you think, so Twelfth Night is the play that's dated after Hamlet. So possibly Shakespeare wrote it a year or so after writing Hamlet. And of course, the novel features boy and girl twins who at the start of the play, sorry, the novel, the play <laughs> features boy and girl twins who at the start of the open of the play, both think the other is dead. And they, they, I mean, it's treated as a comedy, obviously, and a sort of mist, uh, and, and they both dress up in each other's clothes. I mean, they, they dress up in, there's a lot of gender confusion and people confuse them for each other. And then they, towards the end, they are magically reunited and they realise that the other isn't dead. Which if you read it thinking about little Hamnet and Judith, it's really painful. It's very heartbreaking because, of course, they, they never were reunited and that maybe that's what Shakespeare, it's a kind of wish fulfilment, right? One of the things I discovered when I was researching the book is that the opening night of Twelfth Night, which presumably would have been chosen by Shakespeare as he was one of the leaders in The King's Men, was what would have been the twins' birthday. Gosh, I mean... So, it's so heartbreaking when I realised that, you know, when I saw that date, I thought, hang on a second, I recognise that date. And the idea that he wrote this play about boy and girl twins who are separated and reunited, it, it's, it's really heartbreaking. Somebody says to me the most impressive, and they're right. It really is a sort of standout moment of the of the novel. Is is when Judith asks her mother, "What do you call someone who loses a twin?" And she says, "You know, you have a widow. You have." Uh, uh, it immediately reminded this person of um, how is of the, the rested silence. Thank you for pointing out that unspeakability. They say it's not just the twins, though. Just before I let you go, it is a, the, the, the sibling relationships are immensely powerful Bartholomew I, I feel is just such a wonderful character Agnes's brother was that an important thing to you to bring out these the real love between siblings yeah I wanted I wanted Agnes to have somebody on her side <laughs> and I, I was very intrigued by Bartholomew because he if you go to see what's now known as Anne Hathaway's cottage in Shakespeare and actually I would say if anyone's even remotely interested in Shakespeare please go and see the Shakespeare birthday trust it is the most magical experience seeing these houses where they lived but the hall, Hathaway Hall, uh, which would have been an Agnes's day, just a single rural hut. It's a sort of long house, a hall with a, with a fire in the middle where the whole family and animals lived. Bartholomew, he extended it into, into, into what we see today. You know, he put rooms in, he put another floor on. But I just noticed that the lintels in the upper floor, which were the ones that Bartholomew installed, were pretty high for Tudor times. So I just got the idea that that's where, I, that's where the idea in the novel that he's a very tall man came from. I found out I could walk under them almost without ducking. And I thought, maybe he was very tall. <laughs> so that's where that tiny detail came from. Well, I think he is a, a, a really a wonderful character. They, they all are. And, and I, we could probably talk about each one of them for, for five minutes each and go on for another half an hour. But it is somehow the hour's already gone by. So I'm going to let everybody go. But thank you so much indeed to everyone who's um, joined us. It's, it's lovely to, always to see so many people here. And Maggie, thank you very, very much indeed for joining us this evening. It's my pleasure. Thank you all for coming. This week's podcast starred Maggie O'Farrell and was presented by Hannah McInnes. Take a look through our archive for more in-depth interviews with leading novelists, including Isabel Allende, Ian McEwan, Elizabeth Gilbert, and George Saunders. And if that's not enough, you can join our live streams with major cultural figures every night of the week and take part in our programme of live stream creative writing masterclasses. Find out more at howtoacademy.com Thanks for listening.